This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. This episode is for late March 2019. My name is David Dalt and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. I'm here with my friend Dan Horan. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York and he's an assistant professor of systematic theology and spirituality at the Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. He's also a columnist for the National Catholic Reporter. Every couple of weeks we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Dan, as always, it's great to see you. David, the pleasure is all mine. We also have special bonus segments for all you friends of Frank who support the show by donating each month on Patreon. Every couple of weeks, we add a bit of bonus audio, an extended discussion or interview. If you'd like to hear them, you can. Go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod and become a monthly supporter of the show. And before we get started, we also want to remind you that you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfectpod at gmail.com. That's effect, spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. We also want to thank our season sponsors, Liturgical Press and Franciscan Media. They help to make this show possible, so please show them your support and let them know that you appreciate it. Thank you. So today we're going to be talking about three things. Recently, Donald Trump was down south where he decided that he was going to put his John Hancock on God's holy word. And so we're going to be talking about autographing Bibles. In our second segment, we're going to be talking about rising drug costs from a Catholic perspective. And then in our third segment, we're going to be talking about celebrity culture and works of art and what happens when the two come into conflict when you have people doing abhorrent things in their personal life, but they're still creating things that the public seems to want to consume. Those are our three topics for today. We're going to spend a couple minutes catching up, and then we'll get right into it. So, Dan, how have you been? David, I've been reasonably well. We have entered the season of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, Holy Lent. Happy Lent, everybody. Happy Lent, a blessed Lent to all. And so far, so good. It's a busy time of year academically as as listeners who are students or who are teachers who work in various educational disciplines know. And so we're, yeah, all, all cylinders firing. It looks May, like you have a question. I was going to ask you do, you, do you feel comfortable talking about any Lenten disciplines you have taken on or given up? 
Sure. Yeah. So I, I have two. Okay. Uh, I've been trying in recent years to do a plus and a minus. Mm-hmm. You know, there's been a lot of attention. Of course, I grew up going to Catholic schools. And so, you know, from the, the littlest age, we were always told, you know, you should offer in a sacrificial sort of way something for Lent in, in, in the spirit of penance. So as kids, it's usually things like ice cream or candy or something like that. And I varied as, as I've gotten older and certainly as I've entered religious life, I've seen the real value of the, so that would be the minus, I would say. The plus side is is kind of working to develop something in the spiritual life or a, a spiritual discipline or something with prayer. So, so this year, I, I was very deliberate. One of my favorite things, kind of a, a guilty pleasure, is I am a whiskey fan, a bourbon fan. And so, and, and I know you know that. It's something we share in common. And so, so this Lent, the negative has been to to not consume alcohol this Lent. And so, you know, I was having a conversation with a diocesan priest friend of mine, and he was talking about when he was in graduate studies in Rome, that he, for Lent, these years that he was over there, there was a certain dish that he really, really enjoyed. And the culture over there, particularly among religious and, and, and clergy, especially those in studies, you know, you're going out to the restaurant, you're going out for a big lunch in the middle of the day, these kinds of things. And so he said, you know, I, I deliberately did not order that. Now, if I went to a place and somebody served that particular dish, which was my favorite, then obviously I wouldn't be rude. But this practice of kind of putting aside something that I really enjoy, sort of that delayed satisfaction or the the discipline of letting go of something that's pleasurable in that way was the focus. And and so for me, that's the focus. So that's, it's not a big thing. You know, it's not a, a, a significantly life-altering thing, but it's a noticeable thing because there are times, you know, on the weekend or something, you're like, oh man, I'd, I'd, I'd like to have a drink or go out with friends and, and you're ordering, you know, club soda or something. So, so that's the negative. The positive has been to spend more time actually in the chapel, uh, it, particularly in front of the Blessed Sacrament. It's one of these things where we as professional religious, as, as Franciscan friars, we're in the chapel quite a bit, you know, whether it's praying the office or uh, celebrating the Eucharist as community. But, you know, one of the things because of the busy schedule is I don't spend a whole lot of time or as much as I would like, I should say. So for me, um, I have a particular amount of time in my mind that I've set aside, and it's it's not a huge amount, uh, but it's also not a little amount to kind of build that practice back up. So so that's my minus and my plus. How about you? Well, so as a family, we're trying to take on a discipline of neighborhood cleanup. So walking to and from school with the kids with a little trash bag, and if we see trash to pick it up and just to think about that's kind of a positive thing to take on. And the kids are still seven and nine. And so they're not really in a position yet. And they're certainly not canonically required to take on anything onerous. But we talked about it as a family and we decided that's something that we can be doing. It's been a little tricky, though, because the ground has been covered in snow and ice. <laughs> and so it's it's only been the last couple of days that we've been able to kind of exercise this practice. And so I'm interested as spring continues to sprang, sprung, uh, as conti- as it continues to be springy, uh, how that's going to look. For me personally, uh, as I've mentioned before here on the program, I have a particular solidarity I want to have with the poor. And so a lot of my Lenten disciplines kind of come around that. And I, I like kind of what you said. I like to give up something and take on something. And in particular, I like to do that in a way that helps me to feel lack and to feel what it's like to not be resourced to be able to do something. And so this year I've, uh, I've given up sugar which for me is a big thing. Wow. Uh, and uh, That's like taking my alcohol thing and raising it by a thousand. <laughs> so, and this is not the first time that I've done it, but the reason why is because physically 
I feel that more than just about anything else because I have a, I've got an, an unhealthy relationship with sugar. And so depriving myself of it, it's, it's not a dietary thing. I'm not doing it for health reasons. I'm doing it because the physical cravings that I feel make me very conscious of what it's like to have the inability to satisfy even the basic needs of your life, like hunger and things like that. So I'm, you know, I'm not in an economic position where I'd, where I'd ever feel genuine hunger or even, God forbid, starvation. This is a way of trying to have that kind of solidarity. And I've done this before, and it, it works really well because it keeps me mindful every day of, mm. of, that, of that reality. This year also uh, just increasing. I, I keep the Friday meat fast throughout the year, but this year I'm doing the meat fast through the week. And so either vegetables or fish every day and that kind of activity. And then just extra almsgiving. So trying to take on personally an extra attention towards the people on the street that are there who are in transition or who lack stable housing and trying to think about how to, how to be more hospitable to them. And, uh, and so that's, that's an extra piece of attention during Lent as well. Yeah, those, those are really great. It reminds me of a couple of things. So I just shared my own personal thing. And when you're talking about the family, it yeah. reminds me of what my local community is doing too, mm. of which I'm taking part. So I, I probably should have said that too. So thank you for that reminder. And th- before I s- share a little bit of that, the fact that you as a family are going around and picking up trash, I just had this flashback to when I was in elementary school because I had this friend, Tom, when I was in Catholic elementary school, who created this kind of impromptu ad hoc club where his, both of his parents were medical doctors. And so they they had access to like latex gloves. And so he would bring these latex gloves into school and three or four of us during recess would actually go around and pick up garbage you know, the school gave us a bag or he, he, I don't know where he actually got the garbage bag, but I remember where the gloves came from so that we didn't have to touch all the garbage with our hands, our little, you know, fourth grade hands or whatever. And just on the one hand, in retrospect, it, it seems from an adult perspective, really adorable. But I imagine as kids, we were viewed as just weirdos. Yeah, but I, I'm nodding my head in approval. And, yeah. and I, I think so I've been very influenced through the years by an educator by the name of Kurt Hahn, and you, no one will have heard of Kurt Hahn, but you will have heard of the organization he started, which was the Outward Bound Movement, the International Of course, yeah. yeah. And one of the things that Kurt Hahn pointed out was that young people too often are not asked to take responsibility, and one of the greatest things that you can do for a young person is actually give them genuine responsibility. And the, the Outward Bound Movement actually started out in World War I on the cliffs of Dover, Young people from 12 to 15 were cliff watchers for sunken merchant marine vessels, and they would actually go out and be life rescue teams. You know, young children would be life rescue teams for these sailors. And Kurt Hahn, watching the way that the young people stepped up into that responsibility, shaped the way that he thought about service learning and those kinds of things. And and I feel very strongly that young people, you know, fourth grade, as you're saying, or in my case, second and third grade with my children— giving them responsibilities that actually make their community and the people around them make their lives improved, the children respond to that in a very strong way. So I salute you for your youthful <laughs> endeavor. I'm not seeking to take credit for something from 30 years ago. But but still, that's awesome. Yeah, no. And it, well, it's awesome that, that you're instilling that with, with your children. And, yeah. and just to, for our listeners to say, too, that um, that my community, you know, in addition to our individual practices this season, we've developed a couple other practices, too. So one— in terms of prayer, you know, in addition to our, our our normal praying of the office, we've incorporated a more deliberate reading at every day of our rule, which is something that kind of 
we do reflect on, but not enough. And it's, it's just been interesting as that has been incorporated into our prayer life, how I've heard different things. You know, I'm just thinking this morning, we, we you know, prayed morning prayer and hearing chapter four of the rule and just little things that as much as well as I know it strikes me differently. So that's been a really great practice. Like you, we've changed our, and we, we've done this for a number of years now at this, in our local community, the meat abstinence, not just Friday, but, but uh, most of the week, actually. And then as a result, there's an almsgiving dimension where we, we kind of estimate what the difference in cost would be. And we make a decision as a community, something actually we're deciding this week, where to donate that money to an organization or to an outreach resource and that sort of thing. And the last thing I'll say is that... Um, I appreciate your attention to our sisters and brothers here in our neighborhood who, you know, are oftentimes, you know, begging for alms, quite literally. And I'm reminded of two things. One, that Pope Francis, you know, said there's an article that keeps circulating every Lent, which I love, and I can't remember what year he said this, but he talked about giving indiscriminately money to those who ask for it, that even if they spend it on drugs or alcohol or something, it's not our position to judge them. And I think that's very wise. And I think, you know, what oftentimes comes across is kind of a paternalism, a well-intentioned paternalism, like, oh, this person's on the street, I'm not going to give them any money because they're going to buy drugs or alcohol with that, is really just a self-righteous way of justifying holding on to one's own funds. And the second thing is, I'm often challenged by this, I'm not always great at it, but, um, you know, th- this idea that, particularly as a religious, particularly as a Franciscan, living sine proprio, nothing of my own, I have no right to claim something that I that is beyond what I personally need, you know, or my community personally needs. And so if somebody I encounter on the street asks for something and I have something to give them, I ought to do that. So I'm glad to hear that that's incorporated too into your own Lenten practice. And I hope our listeners too, you know, we'd be interested, tweet at us, let us know what you're doing this Lent. Yeah, we'd love to know uh, kind of what you're taking on. And just one last thing before we go to break is just to remind you that if you are in the, uh, the Los Angeles area at the end of this month, we're going to be at the L.A. Congress for Religious Education. Or- well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. End of this month, this Friday, when this airs. Yeah, that's correct. Sorry, when <laughs> so so if you're hear- if you're hearing this and, <laughs> you don't- and you don't have last minute weekend plans, if you want if you need last minute weekend plans, uh, come to L.A. and uh, we're going to be in Anaheim at the convention center, and we'll be around the entire weekend. It looks like most of our recording work is going to be happening on Friday with Dan and I. I will probably be doing kind of guerrilla recording around the conference for the rest of the weekend as well. So be on the lookout for that. And we're, we're looking forward to meeting you in person if you're around. And with that, we're going to take a short break. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Hey, folks, this is David. Thank you for listening and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you're probably aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of them is the Commonweal podcast, produced by my friends over at Commonweal magazine. For almost a century now, Commonweal has staked a claim for Catholic principles and perspectives in American life and for lay people's voices within the church. Their podcast features a wide spectrum of voices discussing art, politics, religion, and civil society. Each episode offers three or four segments that amplify the pages of the print 
magazine and move into new frontiers. I've been a reader of Common Wheel for a long time, and I'm thrilled to share this new podcast with you, whether you're a longtime reader yourself or just discovering it for the first time. You can find the Common Wheel podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts, as well as on their website, commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. That's commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with my friend Dan Horan. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. So, Dan, there was a tornado in my old stomping grounds of Lee County, Alabama. That's literally in my backyard from where I grew up. Oh, wow. Yeah, and so I I have people down there that were directly affected by the damage, and I know people who know people who were dispossessed or who died in that, and so that's that was a heavy thing over the last week to be thinking about. But then when President Trump went down there <laughs> to survey the damage, this odd event happened, and that was he was there in a shelter, and he was talking to people who had been displaced, and he began signing their Bibles and you and I are both plugged into social media of a certain progressive bent, and it's fair to say that progressive Christian social media went haywire over this. Yeah, I, you know, that's, I think that's a fair description of one perspective. I don't know that it was limited to just, I would say, progressive social media. I, I think there were a number of conservative Christians, too, as I would probably identify them, and they might identify themselves, who are also at least confused or or perplexed by this and did not approve, although there's this interesting kind of backflipping jujitsu maneuvering to try to, on the one hand, support Donald Trump, and on the other hand, try to make sense of, why is he signing Bibles? Mm-hmm. And so what was your initial kind of visceral reaction to this? Are you pro or contra autographing Bibles? <laughs> Uh, in, in my opinion, maybe only the Holy Spirit can sign a Bible, <laughs> you know, without getting into all the complicated medieval scholastic theology that would explain why the Holy Spirit could not become incarnate, and that's reserved only for the second person of the Trinity, the Word, you know, barring any kind of heterodox reading of the Holy Spirit's incarnation, there is no Bible signing to be had. So that's my initial response. I, I will say this, and, and uh, this is where I put on my author hat. I'm actually very uncomfortable signing things, including things that I have a contribution in, so like an edited volume in which I have a book chapter. I'm perfectly comfortable signing books I've authored, but the idea of signing something that isn't my words or my thoughts uh, or exclusively makes me uncomfortable. And so, uh, you know, I should just say that by way of general premise that you know, the, if somebody were to present to me a Bible to sign, I just don't know what I would respond. I certainly wouldn't. So, but that's that. So I have a couple different thoughts too. So that's, that's my personal view about that. I'm also perplexed. Part of me wants to give the benefit of the doubt. On the one hand, here, here are two benefits of the doubt I can kind of present. One is these people who are in the shelter have literally nothing. Their whole lives have been upended by this natural disaster. And my sense is that as part of the Red Cross, you know, supplies and part of like neighboring churches who have have volunteered, my assumption is, and as I saw from the photographs of the signed Bibles, these were very cheap mass-produced Bibles. My guess is these were given away or were available at the shelter. And so this may just be what people had to present 
to the president, you know, to get his autograph. It just so happened to be a Bible. So that's one kind of generous read I'm offering. The other is, this is, it may not sound it at first, but it is in fact a generous read. I don't think Trump understands the significance of signing a book. Now, the truth is, and this is a little snarky, He's never authored a book. His most famous book with his name on it was Ghost Written, as so many, you know, celebrity books are. Um, but that's no secret. The Art of the Deal, he did not actually write in, in a literal sense. And nevertheless, his name's on it. He could sign it, that sort of thing. But beyond that, I don't think he understands either the significance of autographing a text he didn't author, and more importantly, the theological and spiritual and kind of political ramifications for signing what uh, you know, Christians hold to be the inspired word of God. I've got a lot of thoughts on this. And lay them on me. Brother. Okay. So part of my scholarly work has been on these kinds of questions. So I work with other academics as part of a, a kind of working group that reflects on the material culture of Bibles and Bible publishing. And so I imagine that James Watts up at Syracuse and Brent Plate and Tim Beale and Dory Parmenter, all colleagues of mine, would have equal and probably much more complex things to say about this than I would, and I would suggest that everyone go and check out their work. But given that caveat, the first thing that comes to mind is that there's a wide spectrum of approaches to how a Bible is to be treated. So there are certain Christians that will never, ever let their Bible rest on a floor because they feel that it's a sign of disrespect. There are some Christians that feel like any kind of marking in a Bible is a sign of disrespect. On the other end of the spectrum, there's, and this is what my friend Dory Permenter works on, there's a, a, a saying that goes, a Bible that is falling apart is usually in the hands of someone who isn't. And so the notion is oh, that's an interesting adage. The yeah. more worn and the more road traveled your Bible is, the more that you can show that you have been engaging with it in a worldly way, the more it seems like you have street cred with a certain band of particularly evangelical reading. And so this group of Bible readers, they will use their Bible until it's literally falling apart and they'll they'll stick it together with duct tape and they'll do a lot of marking on it and they'll and in their bible studies they will highlight and they will underline and they will make notes in the margins but if i can can i ask about i mean so that to me sounds like devotional kind of practice and in a way that it's you know treating maybe the physical material roughly or but with respect even if it's if the the wear is showing and the underlining the writing in there the marginalia is all about prayer and reflection right like that's how does that fit in with the political side of this? Well, I want to I present that as a background to whether or not it's even kosher to write on a Bible at all. Oh, I see. And so for some evangelicals and for some Christians, absolutely not. And for some evangelicals and some Christians, and I don't mean to be differentiating them as if evangelicals aren't Christians, but within the Christian spectrum that we're talking about, we're talking about particularly evangelical phenomenon oftentimes. Yeah. And I mean, we're Catholics. We don't read the Bible anyway. So, <laughs> I, You know, I made a joke about that in my homily <laughs> yesterday, actually. And uh, anyway, go ahead. <laughs> but so when all this kind of blew up, I was very conscious of the fact that Ed Stetzer out at Wheaton took a particular position that said, listen, within a particular Southern Baptist strand, the autographing of Bibles is actually a thing. And going and a pastor showing up as a guest preacher at a church may be asked to sign people's Bibles. So this is not an unknown phenomenon in certain 
strands of particularly evangelical, particularly Southern Baptist Christian practice. Just because it's not a well-known practice doesn't mean that it's completely, it's a complete anomaly. That being said, I think that a lot of Christians would take exception because of who was signing it. And you get, and I'm going to get really nerdy here, but kind of Karl Barth and the Barman Declaration, the, the mixing and commingling of the state and the church is usually a dangerous thing for a certain strand of Christianity that I think you and I both share. And for that reason, in the same way that we would feel uncomfortable parading a flag in the church or really showing kind of fealty to a national object in church, having a national figure sign scripture seems like a strange commingling of that. But I want to I highlight that Ed Stetzer, at least, would take a different position than I would on that. Now, that's very interesting because, as you rightly note, it, it is not well known. I certainly hadn't heard of it. But it makes me wonder, too, I mean, using does the Stetzer and through your interpretation of his reading, is, is that a defense of, you know, I know you're raising this question about what Trump represents politically in terms of his policy, his own personal life and so forth. But how are we to read, let's say, these women and men who presented the Bibles to be autographed, do we read that as they're viewing him like a Christian leader, as a pastor of some kind, as an interpreter of, of the word? Or do they, you know, or is this, they're making an exception, but because pastors have signed Bibles for them before, then it's okay because they're before the president? Like, does this say anything about how they see him? Having grown up six miles from Lee County, Alabama, I will say all of the above. Interesting. You will find those for whom this was a ready way of capturing the fact that Donald Trump was there and now they have his autograph. There are going to be others for whom this has much weightier religious significance. And both of those communities are there. I mean, there's an entire spectrum of, of approaches to Christianity and nationalism and Christian nationalism in that part of the world, as I imagine there is in every part of the country. But, but particularly there, you're going to have very vocal pockets of this, and they coexist together. Well, let me ask you this. So I, I mentioned at the outset of our conversation on this topic, I was viewing this from a couple of different perspectives. One was as, as an author, so it's an authorial perspective and my discomfort with this whole idea. The second thing is a theological perspective about authorship of sacred scripture, right? What does it mean to talk about divinely inspired? Who is the author of the Bible? And Catholics have a very clear understanding of this. It's articulated by the 1993 document from the Pontifical Biblical Commission on Scriptural Interpretation. I could say more about that later if necessary. I recommend people check it out online. It's a great document. It's very De Verbum, right? No, 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 no. Oh. Uh, but De Verbum is a very important document. That's from the Second Vatican Council. So that's the Dogmatic Constitution on Divine Revelation. The 1993 PBC document is about how Catholics interpret Scripture. So in a nutshell, it, it says that historical critical method, rhetorical method, um, particular contextual methods like feminist interpretation and so forth, all of these are perfectly welcome and authorized from a Catholic Christian perspective. The only one that is explicitly forbidden is what's identified as a biblicist, literal, or fundamentalist perspective. Because as Catholic Christians, we make clear that we do not understand the Word of God to be the literal Word of God, as if, you know, God or the Holy Spirit depicted in any way the metaphors that the Holy Spirit's often depicted, like whispers into the ears of the human authors. 
So there's more to say about that, about divine revelation and how that's uh, understood as a historical medium in sacred scripture. But it is not like our Muslim sisters and brothers understand the sacred Quran to be the literal word of God communicated to the prophet Muhammad. We as Catholic Christians do not treat the Old Testament and New Testament that way. So for me, those were the two things. That's my perspective where like my initial response is as an author and as a theologian, I'm like, what is this? You know, the signing of the Bible. Let me ask you, what's your, so you gave us this other perspective. What's, what's the David Dalt view on this? Wow. Uh, I appreciate the generosity of that question. I, I will say that I'm speaking only for myself. I'm not speaking for any other organization and I'm not speaking for any particular religious tradition when I say this. This is me kind of coming out of the trajectory of my scholarly work. I have a very low material assessment of scripture, which means unlike my friends who will not put the Bible on the ground, those kinds of things, I don't have any kind of reverence for the physical object of scripture. And we can talk much longer about why that's the case. And I also don't have an idea that there's some kind of pure form of Christianity that we either we either adhere to or we deviate from. So for me, when I look at someone who is claiming to be Christian, who has the, the bare markers of Christianity, which means that they've been baptized and they've been accepted as legitimate members by their community, if they say that they're doing something and they call it Christian, that for me is within the umbrella of Christianity. So if there are Christians who have not been disaffiliated and they have been baptized who are getting their Bibles signed, then that is a Christian practice in my opinion. But you're not saying that just because somebody identifies a practice as Christian that it's a good practice. No, not at okay. all. Just not at all. And, and I mean, I am, I, you know, speaking as a scholar, I can look at the wide range of people calling themselves Christians and being accepted by their particular subset of the Christian community and saying that their practice is Christian and say, okay, that's within the wide ambit of, of Christian practice. I am a Catholic and so I can recognize that that diverges from Catholic practice. And as a Catholic, I can say that won't fly with me or my bishop. But for most Baptists, they won't care that a Catholic doesn't like their practice, <laughs> and they won't care that my bishop doesn't like their practice. So I recognize, I recognize the limits of my ability to pronounce whether something is legitimate for me while still recognizing that well, it's legitimate for them. Yeah, no, 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 no. I, I, I'm not putting that into question. I guess, and I don't want to accuse you of skirting the issue, um, I, I think you've presented— as I understand it, you're, you have a certain bandwidth that's wide enough to tolerate or accept or n not necessarily approve, but you're not losing a lot of sleep over this practice in yeah. general, in general. But to, to, to directly answer your question, yeah. signing the outside cover of a Bible and not bothering to read Deuteronomy 6 or Matthew 25, to me, misunderstands what the book is for. Yeah, and there you're making reference to treating of, of strangers and refugees and widows for, for our listeners. Yeah, and, and just basically looking at the least of these among us and finding ways to make sure that they are hospitably treated seems to me to be the meaning of the book. And, and that, you know, just signing the outside cover of the book makes the book into what my friends James Watts and Dory Parmenter and Tim Beale and Brent Plate would call an, an iconic object, a totem rather than actual scripture in the kind of, in the, in the theological sense that we mean it. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I, I feel this is, so for our listeners, I, I was really excited to talk about this topic with David because he's working on a book right now <laughs> for Yale University Press on the divergence of Bibles and devotional Bibles and these sorts of things. And so keep an eye out for that in, in coming months and years. You know, so I'm learning a lot and you're raising some interesting things that have got me thinking to, to bring it back about 800 years. Yeah. To my own tradition uh, within the Catholic world as a Franciscan, Francis of Assisi had a certain spirituality that would be quite 
different from yours in terms of his approach to the to materiality of sacred scripture. And what was that? So he writes in a number of places, including instructions to the friars, that whenever the brothers come across pieces of paper in which scripture is written. And so the context here is, you know, the codices and the, and the sheaves of parchment and of, of scraps of paper that would have existed in the 13th century prior to the printing press, prior to the kind of books that we would recognize as books. Back then in the, in the 1200s, chapels and stuff, there was no sacramentary. There was no Roman Missal. There were scraps of paper and some of them had, you know, scripture written on them. Some of them had, you know, prayers of the mass written on them. And so Francis would find in a lot of times these country churches that, you know, there's no glass on the windows. You know, the door is open if there's a door and there's, you know, bird poop everywhere and and winds blowing and snows coming in. And that the country priest or the local parson, the sacristan or something, hasn't kept good care of either the Blessed Sacrament in in a place of reserve. You know, usually it wasn't a golden tabernacle, but a special place. And likewise, didn't always take care of the physical property, you know, the papers on which the sacred scripture was written. So for Francis, he admonishes leaders in the church and in civil society, as well as his own Franciscan brothers, that whenever they go about the world and come across the word of God written on papers and pieces of paper, that they collect them and put them in a place of reverence. And so, I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons sociologically, historically, why that's the case, you know, that that isn't the same as today where we have you know, you go to the USCCB, as I often do, to read the NAB. You know, it's it's digital. There is no physical book. Or some of these signed copies we saw, you know, via the media, those are mass-produced. They cost 10 cents to make in some, you know, factory offshore or something like this. So, I mean, th- the idea was, on the one hand, preservation perhaps for the, the rarity of the physical copy of sacred scripture. But Francis kind of spiritualized that and had a theology of um, that was tied very much for him with the incarnation, both the incarnation in the canonic move of God becoming human, seen also in the Eucharist, seen also in the word of God as proclaimed in scripture. So um, I think maybe there is a little bit of that in me too. I, I'm not somebody who loses any sleep about a Bible being placed on the ground, you know, and and I have a number of translations in many languages of, of sacred scripture on shelves. Um, and as a scholar, too, I engage scripture in many different ways, including prayerfully, liturgically, devotionally, um, but also scholarly and, and, and approach the text from that context as well at times. So, but I'm still not cool with it, I guess. I guess I have a hard, harder line on this, maybe. I don't and know. So, and so help me understand. So there are certain traditions, certainly the Jewish tradition, we can find examples of this, and also in the Muslim tradition, in the Sikh tradition, but also in some Christian traditions, anything that has the name of God on it cannot be treated as another book or another piece of paper is treated, and sometimes even Bibles and other sacred texts in these various traditions are literally buried like a body would be buried. So that kind of reverence is certainly there in the wider religious tradition. Help me understand kind of what your disconnection from this is. You know, I don't have... That's a great question. I think for me, the biggest sort of response that I have, the kind of biggest emotive response, goes back to my initial claim about the perspective as an author, the perspective as a theologian, and what literally the Word of God symbolizes, not it as the literal Word of God, but what we understand is divinely inspired canonical scripture signifies and symbolizes for us. And so I think, you know, I guess my point is, 
I, I sense that because it's Donald Trump and what he represents, as you rightly said, you have great discomfort with him signing Bibles. But in the same way that I would have discomfort with parading a flag. In right, a, right. As you as you stated. Yeah. But in and of itself, I think you tend to be less and understandably, given what you've explained and what you've studied, less uncomfortable with, you know, a, a visiting pastor at a, at a Southern Baptist church signing, you know, Bibles after, after, after service or something, where for me, I don't have a problem with the writing of text, the marginalia, the study, you know, highlighting certain key passages, etc. But I still, for some reason, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with the signing in general, I think more so than you are, but especially because of... Donald Trump and what he represents in his own policies, his own sort of recklessness and disregard for Christianity as such, you know, and frankly, what I see as a kind of fleecing of Christians, you know, self-identified Christians, particularly evangelicals. And we see this with Jerry Falwell Jr. and the kind of nonsense that he, the, the kind of twisting and contorting he has to do to kind of justify, you know, Trump um, and his support of Trump and, and kind of encouraging evangelical Christians to support him. So I think, you know, I think for me, that's really, it's, it's a, it's a one-two punch where it seems, if I understand you correctly, it's kind of a one punch. Yeah. And in the end, we may, we may, in this particular topic, fall in the same place, but for different reasons. Yeah, for me, the distaste has very little to do with any kind of principle about the sacredness of Bibles as physical objects and much more to do with the principle about the particular types of people that are doing the signing. And it's much more a, a hesitancy about Christian nationalism than it is anything else. For listeners that would like to go deeper into these kind of questions and are, are feeling sort of energized by the nerdiness of what we've just done, I want to lift up one particular book uh, to you, and it's a book called Words Upon the Word, an Ethnography of Evangelical Group Bible Study by a colleague of mine, James Biello, B-I-E-L-O. It's an excellent book, and I learned a lot from it, and it, it, it has framed part of what I've been talking about today. And with that, let's take a break. You're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. We'll be back in just a moment. The Francis Effect is made possible in part by our wonderful supporters at Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod to find out about how you can join them. A couple of dollars a month really adds up, and we appreciate it. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash francisfxpod. Thank you. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Haran, and I'm here with David Dahl. Every couple of weeks, we get together to offer you commentary on current events informed by our Catholic faith. We're switching gears right now to talk about drugs. <laughs> okay, well, maybe not the kind of enjoyable recreational drugs that some people, for better or for worse, participate in, but the life uh, requiring the absolute necessary drugs that people need in order to live to make it day by day. And we're concerned here with recent reports about the skyrocketing costs and the role of the healthcare industry and the potential role of government in regulating and supplementing and making those drugs available. And we've seen many, many stories of how people have died, children included, because they could not afford to get the basic medication that they need to live. 
David, what do we make of this? Well, so there's so much to talk about, but the thing in general that we that we need to sort of lay out, first of all, from a Catholic perspective, is the entire idea of healthcare for profit, the entire idea that you can somehow have a marketplace or use market forces in a reasonable way when you're talking about someone who is literally making life and death decisions and sometimes whose entire existential ability to cope is tied with whether or not those decisions are available to them at that moment. And so let me give one particular example. When I was in college, I had a good friend uh, who later married uh, another good friend of mine, and I was in their wedding, but she was uh, a diabetic. And I watched her. We were all kind of up at school over the summer one time, and I watched her kind of break down in tears because she was getting ready that next year to graduate. And she said, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know that I'm going to be able to find a job. And if I can't find a job, I can't get health insurance. And if I can't get health insurance, I can't get insulin. And if I can't get insulin, I die. And this was, this was almost 30 years ago now. And that problem has not gotten better. It's gotten worse. And so that, to me, is a piece that I want to keep foregrounded in this conversation, is the whole idea that a person's life or death is someone else's profit— and whether or not that person, that precious child of God gets to live or die is more thought about in terms of the impact on a balance sheet than the impact on that actual human existence, that to me is abhorrent. And that is a background of how I approach this conversation. And I'm, I'm, I guess I'm not very rational about it because I immediately I've laid my cards on the table. I think that it's a monstrosity that we even have to have that kind of conversation. Well, in your defense, I think you are being extremely rational about it. I mean, it's unreasonable that these are the kind of choices that people are forced to make. It's analogous in my mind to uh, people who have to choose between medication and food or education and food or housing and food. All of these things are what we identify as basic necessities for human flourishing. And the Catholic Church is very, very clear on this, that these are a right. Um, they're not a privilege. One is not privileged to get insulin when they can't live without it. Um, not in a society which, as the church teaches, is is intended to promote the common good. That is the purpose of a government. And so let me ask you about some practical questions then. I mean, here we are. It's March 2019. We are already in the long kind of slog of the 2020 presidential campaign, and there are a lot of conversations being had, particularly among the Democratic candidates, those who have th thrown their hats in the ring about Medicare for all, about, you know, reform in healthcare in terms of prescription costs and big pharma and these sorts of things. I mean, are you hearing things are, are, that give you some sort of hope? Are you nervous about some of the conversation that's taking place? I mean, what, what's your take of the situation and where do we go from here? So one of the things that we need to separate is health care and health care delivery from health insurance. And we have been attacking this problem on the health insurance level for the past 20 years, trying to reform either through, you know, getting rid of pre-existing conditions or finding ways to cap the lifetime or to stop the caps on lifetime delivery or those kinds of things, the stuff that the Affordable Care Act was supposed to be delivering to us. But again, the Affordable Care Act wasn't really about care. It was about insurance. And it was about the ways in which insurance practices, which were monstrous were being restricted from insurance companies' ability to deploy them. So, for example, you suddenly are diagnosed with a condition 
and it's not a condition that you had when you first took your insurance, but your insurance company suddenly finds a way to get you off of its rolls. Because now, instead of being a person who's contributing, now you've become a drain on their bottom line. That used to be a common practice. My father was an insurance salesman, and he would tell me stories about companies that would do this kind of stuff. He didn't work for them, and he made a point not to work for them, but those companies were out there. And you could certainly buy junk insurance that would cover the basic idea of having insurance, but it wouldn't actually insure you. So none of this actually impacts the bottom line of what we would call healthcare delivery. It's simply whether you want a more or less violent middleman. But 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 isn't it actually the prerequisite for healthcare delivery that it's it's the cost of admission, it's it's the card, it's the ticket to access? In our in America. Right, right. <laughs> well, I mean, this is what we're talking about, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, for all of the complaints, I, I'm a subscriber of the Times of London, so mm-hmm. I always read what's going on, you know, over there. And, of course, there are always these debates about NHS, which is their national health system. Yeah. And about, you know, how expensive it is and yada, yada, yada. But the truth is they have a system where there's a single-payer, you know, government-based delivery and, you know, private insurance, as we understand it, how it works here – doesn't exist over there. It's a totally different thing. You can supplement the basic care with additional private insurance, and you can also pay out of pocket for certain boutique procedures. Well, yeah, and that's very that's it's in fact more common in places like Canada, right? I mean, this does exist around the world, but we're talking about les Estados, uh, you know, Estados Unidos. Yeah, we're talking about. Uh, you know, I started started that. I don't know. I think I just began that in French and ended it in Spanish. I was so, noticing that. Yeah. yeah. And that's why I paused. I'm like, wait, <laughs> what language am I saying? In any event, we're talking about the United States, right? Yeah. I mean, so, yeah, that's true. You know, that's how they do it here. But that not that the issue? It's not about healthcare delivery. I mean, it's it's so prior to that. Your friend in college was concerned about the ticket to ride, mm-hmm. you know. You know, forget about the experience of the ride itself. Yeah, and so the ticket to ride, when we were talking about my college years, which were 1989 to 1993, the ticket to ride was you get a job, and the job provides you with health insurance. And then when I got out of college, that shifted to the you get a job, and then you take money from your paycheck, and you buy yourself health insurance, not as a benefit, but as something that you add on. And now we're... You know, the, the Affordable Care Act allowed the possibility, and it, it was not very well realized, that even if you didn't have a job, you could still get affordable health insurance, although many red states decided to find ways to creatively scuttle that to make that impossible. And so— Which, which to me yeah. seems completely unjustifiable. Oh, absolutely. Okay. I completely Just agree. we're on the same page. Oh, yeah. That. Yeah. So I, I think, again, we're trying to make a broken model better. Uh, I think that the National Health Service that you mentioned in Britain is at least a better model, which also has problems, but can be improved. But you're improving something that is actually decent and from the from the get-go as opposed to what we have, which I don't think is decent. For right, which is also incredibly cost-saving. Yeah. I mean, it's there are undeniable statistics that make clear that the cost of both health care – and the distribution of health goods, so things like um, medicine, for instance, and the service of health delivery itself is so disproportionately expensive here in the United States than it is elsewhere in the world. And so I think that's an important thing for us to realize, too, which brings me back to this 2020 race and the conversations that at least the Democrats are having because they're the party that has to find a candidate. So the various you know people who have their hat in the ring are debating this, but there seems to be a kind of consensus around some form of expansion of government funded government overseen 
healthcare insurance, right? Mm-hmm. And and this is what's oftentimes called Medicare for all. Now they they argue. Uh, among themselves, do we mean get rid of private insurance and just make something similar to the Brit- British system of National Health Service? Or is it Medicare for all, meaning that everyone can have access to buy into it as as a kind of government option? Is it, you know, lower the age to, let's say, 55 from the high 60s, for instance? Is is that so that, you know, people who are retiring or when cost gets really, really high for folks who tend to be Older, although 55 to me does not sound very, does not sound very old. In any event, you know there are a lot of different models that are being floated. You know, as somebody who's very concerned about this access to medicine, uh, access to healthcare, as you're describing it, what appeals to you? I mean, informed by your Catholic faith, what what do you think? You know, what's the David Dalt answer here? In 2008, I wrote to all of my representatives because I was watching as they conjured. billion out of thin air to shore up banks. And what I wrote to them at the time was, I I know for a fact that you are going to say that it is completely legitimate to conjure up out of nowhere $700 billion for banks and for white-collar criminals to not go to jail. And then you're going to turn around and say, not only because we just did this, but also on principle, we can't do that for healthcare. And, and you were right. Yeah. And so Sadly. is it possible to conjure out of thin air the money necessary to create a system that would allow for everyone to get basic level health care in this country? Absolutely. We know that the mechanism is there. We watched it happen in 2008. We simply don't have the political will to do it. We don't imagine that that political reality is a possibility in the way that bailing out banks is a possibility. So what you're describing there, though, is is perception as opposed to reality. Oh, yeah. yeah. All, all of this is fiction. Yeah, and I agree with you. Yeah. That's, I'm 100% in agreement. And part of it is, going back to our, our British friends, despite their Brexit circus right now, mm-hmm. um, or, or neighbors in the north, the, the Canadians, or to any number of other countries around the world, it does exist. It does. It, it delivers very, very good health care. And it's affordable, both on the national level and for individuals. It's not breaking the, breaking the bank. And people like your friend from college who are going through that experience even today, you know, folks who are 25 or 26 who may have still been on their parents' health care, you know, are, are, you know, especially in what's sometimes referred to as the gig economy, this mm-hmm. idea of precarious, you know, freelance work and job to job to job uh, itinerancy, the idea that you're going to be at one place, you're employed by one organization or company, and that they're going to provide your health care, those days are gone. Yeah. And so there's even more, I think, a pressure, particularly from millennials, people my age and younger, who are never going to enjoy the thing that the baby, baby boomers did, that our parents did, of that kind of, at least if I get a job, I'll have health care. And so I don't know. I, I mean – it seems to me that there is this now it's an overused cliche, but a gaslighting of of the of the public, right? Particularly by one political party. And I know it sounds like we're being very partisan, surprise, surprise. <laughs> but you know, it is on the one hand very heartening to me that those who are vying for the Democratic nomination in 2020 are all more or less on the same page about this being an issue and that there needs to be at least a national public option. However that's construed, it needs to be there. And yet, like you pointed out with the 2008 financial crisis followed by, you know, the resistance and the dogged resistance and desire to retract the Affordable Care Act from 2009 onward, 
there's just, it's like night and day. Well, let me go even farther back in history. In the wake of World War II in 1945, 1946 and following, Great Britain decided to invest in a national health system. That was a conscious political choice. America chose to invest in a nuclear deterrent defense economy. And so we put our money into research and development to miniaturize nuclear weapons. And that was the major expenditure of government for about 35 years. And defense is still a major expenditure of our government. And so we, if you think of federal dollars, we take probably 80 plus cents per dollar towards defense and not to anything else, not to infrastructure, not to healthcare, not to any kind of the bettering of our civil society. And we have literally fellow citizens who are rationing their insulin because even though insulin costs $6 a vial to make, at its generic level, it sells for $600 a vial. Jeez. And so the markup, and I get that statistic from an NPR report this morning, so this is not me pulling numbers out of the air, and I'll make sure that that's in the show notes. But oftentimes, when someone is getting insulin, they're not getting it at generic prices. Okay, and so... Is it possible to make this more affordable? Yes. Does it mean that shareholders are going to suffer, quote unquote, because their bottom line will be diminished? Yes. And so are we as a society willing to say that the suffering of shareholders is less important than the suffering of human beings who are ill? As a Catholic, I say absolutely, but as a society, we don't seem to be able to make that shift. Well, and that's part of the problem, too, of kind of, you know, there's been a lot of talk of democratic socialists and, and the Democratic Party moving left towards socialism, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think that's a bad problem. I'm sorry, <laughs> baby boomers and older. I, I'm, I, I hate to break it to you, but your children and grandchildren don't give a sh- Mm. about your phobias of socialism, Mm. not because the ill effects of communism aren't real and that we're not historically conscious. We are, and we see the devastating effects in parts of the world. But the scare tactic that somehow the common good facilitated by our national governments or even at the local level, our state and and community governments, are somehow symbolic of an anti-American or anti-U.S. sort of ideology is a product of the 1940s and 50s. It is. It, fi- it fits exactly with what you were saying, David, about the arms race. And this is not the world we want to live in. This is not the country we want to live in. And as, as far as the Catholic Church is concerned, read your John Paul II social encyclicals, people. All of you people who want to go around talking about John Paul the Great, read what he has to say about capitalism. Mm-hmm. Read what he has to say about atomic weapons. Read what he has to say about health care and access, particularly for the poor and those who suffer. See what he had to say about the refugees. I'm bringing up John Paul II because Pope Francis is saying it every day, yeah. but, but the same crowd is very disinterested in what he has to say. Well, let's also remember that in Acts 4, the community of believers was of one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, and they had everything in common. With great power, the apostles bore witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and a great favor was accorded to them all. There was no needy person among them, and those who owned property or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sale and put them at the feet of the apostles, and they were distributed to each according to their need. I mean, it's right there in our scripture. And this was a way that they did evangelism. This was the way that they proclaimed the glory of God was making sure that those who were among them who were in need were cared for. Yeah, two points on that. Yeah. One, both David and I agree you can underline that passage in the Bible, just for a reminder. And two, 
even though, you know, New Testament scholars would point out that that was very unlikely to be actualized, it was nevertheless codified as the ideal of Christian living. And so we should strive for that, even if, because I, I, I can anticipate people coming back and saying, well, that didn't actually happen, which may be true. But nevertheless, the community, right, this community around the table of the Lord strove for that for all the reasons you've said. Well, and just think about as Christians, the reality that someone is rationing their medicine and as a result of that may die. And, you know, there are people that I follow on Twitter who are disability advocates who literally, if their Medicare is interrupted, they will not have the life-saving medicine and they will die within the month. And we just had a disability advocate actually die because of that, because she was rationing her medicine. All of these things are realities that as children of God, we as Christians should abhor. We should say there is, there is no justification that I can find in the text of Scripture to allow for someone who is my neighbor to suffer and to die because of lack and because of want. That, to me, seems completely antithetical to the witness of the Catholic Church, as you've rightly pointed out, but also just to the wider Christian witness. If we believe in anything, we must believe in that. And that's probably a good place to end, good points to reflect on. So thank you, David. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Francis Effect. Hello, this is David, uh, outside the podcast realm for the moment, just talking to you in advertising land. If you're enjoying the conversation that we're having, I want to make sure that you're aware that I do another show as well called Things Not Seen, Conversations About Culture and Faith. That's a weekly show that's been on since 2011, and we've talked to some amazing guests. It's basically a long-form interview where we get a chance to talk about how faith animates a person's life. We talk to authors and politicians and tastemakers and musicians, any kinds of folks that have some sort of faith component to their lives. So I'd love it if you get if you gave that a chance, too, and gave that a listen. That's at thingsnotseenradio.com. That's thingsnotseenradio.com. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks, we get together to talk to you about issues and topics informed through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. Now, Dan, you told me over the weekend that you just got done watching this four-part miniseries on Netflix called Leaving Neverland, and I haven't seen it, but why don't you tell me about that? Yeah, uh, it's on HBO, actually. It's an HBO oh, documentary that the debuted. It was it was actually kept pretty under wraps for what would be obvious reasons um, that I'll explain in a moment. But it debuted at the Sundance Film Festival. It's a four-hour-long documentary in two parts, and it presents the stories of these two men who are actually my age, interestingly enough, that, that led to part of the complications, the kind of empathetic trauma of hearing their stories. But in, in a nutshell... These are two uh, young men who, as children, were befriended and brought into Michael Jackson's inner circle. One was a, a little boy from Australia who was and is something of a dancing prodigy. He would grow up to become a choreographer, an award-winning choreographer who would work for a lot of pop stars and, and still is very active today in that field. 
And the other one was a uh, child actor who was in a Pepsi commercial with Michael Jackson as a child, and that's how their connection first began. And I don't want to recount the whole thing. I, I should say, too, just to our listeners, that we are talking about and we'll be talking about child sexual abuse in this segment. And so this may be difficult for folks to listen to. And on that note, you know, the documentary Leaving Neverland is, is deeply disturbing in a good way. And by a good way, I mean it's for all of the critiques, and we can get into that. Some people are resisting, uh, particularly diehard fans of Michael Jackson. What I do appreciate and that I've heard a lot of and seen and read a lot of critics point out is that it really gives the opportunity for victim survivors to tell their story and does so in a way that actually gives the whole background. And one of the most interesting things that's presented there, and Sister Rose Paquette, who is a movie reviewer for National Catholic Reporter and other publications, as well as some secular critics have pointed out, that they do a good job explaining the complicated reality for both the victim survivor, especially as a child, that it's not just abuse in this kind of way that I think sometimes we imagine it or talk about it in an abstract way, that there's some sort of lurking, you know, creepo who's going to, you know, wearing a trench coat who's going to like lure kids into a white van with candy. But that there is technically sometimes we talk about this in terms of grooming, but there is, as I think they more accurately describe, a seductive dimension of this and that there is a complicated experience, particularly for children who are maturing, you know, and, and those who have children or who have nieces and nephews or grandchildren, you know, every day kids are learning so much and growing, you know, they're, they're receptacles that are open to all sorts of experiences. And so that makes this even more horrific that their emotional life is brought into this as well, such that even well into early adulthood, these children who have grown up being abused by somebody like Michael Jackson, as, as is alleged by this documentary, by their own testimony and the testimony of their families and, and others, creates almost a Stockholm Syndrome sort of thing. So the question is, some of these boys, for instance, actually testified on Michael Jackson's behalf in, in the two trials that he was up against in which he was ultimately acquitted in both, or at least in one was there was an out-of-court settlement. And now, this, the, you know, what they do is very in a very detailed way, I think a very sensitive way, but in a very direct and at times jarring way, is relay what it was like for them and how they understand it and what the breaking point has been so that as, as men now in their mid-30s, you know, starting families of their own, it was causing this post-trauma to come back. And fortunately, they were able to seek the help that they needed to kind of process through this. But now they're telling their story. So that's the background there. Well, so let me ask you some questions since I haven't seen this. So one thing that comes up when we talk about Bill Cosby or Michael Jackson or R. Kelly is an intersectional question, that there's a racial component to this as well. And that oftentimes successful African-American men, particularly are targeted for these kinds of accusations because it's an easy way to try and get them off of their success and to bring them down. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's what's going on here, but is that addressed at all in this series? Yeah, it is. In part, I mean, I think part of the family's defense has been the family's been very, very upset. They've got a lot to lose, of course, with Michael Jackson's legacy and the income that his royalties and, and his his estate continue to bring in. And that's been part of the, the defensive claim, that this is an attack job. It's very one-sided. It is, on one hand, one-sided. It privileges the experience of victim survivors. 
it just so happens both of these men are are white. Again, one from Australia, one from the U.S. But as becomes evident, is as you see in footage and in the stories of the experiences of these two men and as children, is that it wasn't just white children that Michael Jackson is alleged to have abused and, and seduced, but but also children of color, you know, African American children as well. That becomes a, a a touch point in part of the second half of the of the film. You know, when we talked about talking about this topic, one of the reasons I wanted to address this is because I I see it as um, an allegory, you know, for so many things. Obviously, the most ready to hand is the Catholic Church's own coming to terms with its history of sexual abuse and cover up the desire to to, to make it not happen, to make it disappear. And if I can just frame that out, so we create in our culture in a variety of contexts powerful people and we put them in some way on a pedestal and we make them beyond reproach. So either through, you know, fame or through something like a priest who is seen as the focal point of a community, any kind of accusation against them is seen as as somehow, you know, bad for the community. Well, and this is where I'm going with it because what's laid out is that Michael Jackson, it wasn't necessarily a matter of him being a person of color and to what extent that's the case with R. Kelly or with Bill Cosby and their accusations in the case of Cosby, a conviction, I don't want to necessarily go there, although intersectionality is very important. What's what's most evident here is to go back to the late 80s and early 90s, I mean, that's one of the striking things about the documentary footage in this film, to realize, and I have forgotten because Jackson has been dead for 10 years. I remember driving in the car in Boston and hearing over the radio that he was dead and how every radio station played for 24 hours a day all of his music nonstop. And that was a long time ago already. So to go back 30, 35 years and to think about how he was the most recognized, most powerful, most hopeful symbol of so many things really is kind of an extreme iteration. Analogous, you know, we can see that maybe R. Kelly's history is a little bit complicated, but he has that celebrity dimension, right? He has his own creativity and and, and kind of success in that regard. Bill Cosby was somebody who was held up as a role model, as a figure of admiration, of of respect, and also was an internationally recognized person. Similarly, we have, you know, and it's not just persons of color. You have Woody Allen, famously, right? Uh, You mentioned the, the case of of Catholic priests and of bishops. I think of Cardinal McCarrick, of whom we've we've spoken a lot on this podcast. And so part of what gets unveiled in the the very painstaking but very, I think, important and discomforting narratives is that even the victims themselves during the perpetration of uh, of this abuse, you know, especially as children, it's compounded by this, had this sense that this is Michael Jackson. He's got to be right. This, uh-huh. I mean, it's, it's him. And as they were talking about this and sharing their experiences, I, I, I'm reminded of the, the stories of victim survivors of, of clergy abuse. And it's the same sort of thing. Father represents God to this faith community. The bishop, you know, they can do no wrong. And, and to us, it sounds, you know, as we're talking about it, and to our listeners, this might evoke personal experiences, and for us, that may as well. And so I want to acknowledge that. But I think oftentimes it's discussed so abstractly. And what this film does is it makes it very, very real. And what a predator does is to exploit a, a moment in development when a child is wanting to exert more agency 
and choice and wants in some way to act as an autonomous being away from the control of parents and whatever. And so, so development, agency, and sexuality are all intertwined with this, and they make this a very complex question. doesn't make anything that a perpetrator does correct. That's right. I want to make that bright line clear. But from the standpoint of trying to find out kind of where the lines are with this, Sometimes victims, at least in the in the moment of their victimization, may be thinking that they are acting with agency and they're they're acting out of their own desire. And that comes through very, very clearly. I think that's one of the major contributions and, and why I think the, the documentary film director allowed this to be a four-hour-long film. You know, it needs to be in a sense because it's the slow burn of detail and granularity of, you know, not just the chronology and the development of this, of these relationships and then the abuse that takes place. But what you're saying, you know, you see because people will rightly say, well, where are the parents in all of this? Aren't they complicit in this? And, and they acknowledge themselves. In, in a sense, they are. There is complicity. And yet in the moment, you don't have the hindsight that's twenty twenty. And that becomes evident, too, in the pain. You know, it's not to justify the parents. It's not to justify, as you rightly said, the victimizers here, the abusers. But it's it's a complicated reality, and it's very, very telling. I mean, it's, it's just a very insightful film. But I need to acknowledge, again, it's very difficult to watch. Mm-hmm. If I may just switch the conversation a little bit, you know, with that as our background, the reason, you know, we decided we wanted to talk about this was – now what is the question? Well, and let me concretize that. Now what? So when you have particularly someone who is a trusted member of a community or someone who creates art and creates culture, the question then becomes how do you differentiate the artifacts of creation from the creator and from the horror of the creator? And, and when we were discussing this off mic, the place that nerds like us go to with that, of course, is Martin Heidegger. And so Martin Heidegger, for those that don't track in these kinds of nerdy questions, was, was a very influential German philosopher. And so you can find the influence of Martin Heidegger in people from the 20th century that we read a lot in seminary, like Paul Tillich or uh, Karl Rahner, Karl Rahner, Rudolf Bultmann. Joseph, so he, Joseph Ratzinger. An, incredible, an incredibly influential philosopher who also happened to have been an avowed Nazi. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's, I, mean, I don't mean to laugh at something so serious. I mean, we're both kind of chuckling because it's, it is sort of this, and by the way, yeah, you know. And so, you know, a, a real question is, does that discount all of the work that he did and the influence of the work that he has had? Does that taint Bultmann? Does that taint, taint Ratzinger? Ron, does that Ron, taint yeah. Rahner? And does that make it so that we should not we should disavow the entirety of the legacy and the entirety of the influence based upon that? Or is it possible to isolate the product, the art, the philosophy from the philosopher, the artist, the creator? That's a really tricky question. So this is my, this is something that, that I think about all the time as somebody who has read a lot of Heidegger, who's, you know, given the work that I do in theological anthropology, the stuff that I do in, in uh, philosophical theology, you can't avoid it. And now I have my own critiques of Rahner's thought as such, but, you know, to what degree you acknowledge these certain things, um, his his uh, association with, with the Third Reich and with Nazism, 
is a, a tricky question. I think too, so you, you've brought up, so we have the intellectual tradition, another person that came up that we've talked about that I've always admired the work of, though had never known the person, is John Howard Yoder, yeah. who posthumously became very clear, had sexually assaulted numerous, uh, numerous uh, students, graduate students, and that sort of thing, uh, women students in particular. And yet here's somebody who whose work is very, very, influential and important, especially when it comes to, ironically, Christian nonviolence. Yeah, and so someone like Stanley Hauerwas, who really draws upon the work of Yoder, he, a couple of years ago, wrote a very weird defense of Yoder. It was his real first public speaking on the subject. I found it to be, in many ways, an inadequate response. But, you know, so there are contemporary thinkers who are trying to make reckoning with this, but let's go even deeper. So when we look at the German scholars who were helping to create the tools that are now used in seminaries. So both the Hebrew translation tools and the Greek translation tools, many of the people who were part of that German intellectual tradition were also Nazis. And this becomes an interesting sort of question for us as Christians. To what extent do we need to be suspicious of the lexicons that seminarians are using and these sorts of things? Do they in some way encode these biases, these racial biases, in ways that we don't see? Well, I mean, that's an interesting question, too. And it might be too esoteric yeah. for this conversation. I, I just want to put that out there. It's, I think you're right yeah. to name it. I mean, I, I would like to, just because our listeners may or may not be interested in that, I want to kind of take a step back yeah. in the kind of more forest view. Yeah. You know, to the same point, it's not just in theology. Mm-hmm. It's in, in the sciences. So we are here in Hyde Park, Chicago. This is the birthplace of the Manhattan Project. This is, you know, those uh, Nazi scientists that were, that escaped or left after contributing to a lot of terrible things. You know, I think of Brown. Is it Brown? Of uh, Werner von Braun. And yeah. the, so in NASA, the space exactly. program, they, these he were He invented the rocket, yeah. basically, the, the, what was necessary for us to go to the moon, yeah. as it were, and to go into space. And so there was a, a deal with the devil, one might say. To, Operation Paperclip. Operation for those, Paperclip, For those yes. that want to Google it, yeah. Yes. And, and so this idea of, of, of bringing, and of course, that becomes a big kind of sub-theme in The X-Files, season two and three. Yeah, yeah. In any event, I I think about artists, too. So we talked about Cosby. We can talk about the controversies around Louis C.K. and his wanting to get back into, you know, practicing his trade and craft. And the truth is, he's a comedic genius. There's no doubt about that. Michael Jackson was a musical genius, period. They are. The question is, what do we do with that? Woody Allen... Eh, the jury's still out. I mean, some of his films are genius and some of them are not so good. And yet, you know, here's another complicated figure that's that's tainted by real scandal and, and likely abuse, alleged abuse, right? And so a few weeks ago, I was cooking in the kitchen and my daughter was cooking with me and we decided to put on some music. And one of the things that, that I decided to put on, some Michael Jackson. And in retrospect, thinking about that, I'm like, that was a weird choice, but I did it because I was looking for something upbeat and something that I could share with her from my childhood, from when I was about her age, that was a sort of common ground. 
But now I realize that's a weird choice given in the light of all this. Is I mean, but that's my that. So I listened to an interview this morning with John Legend, who's an EGOT, right? This guy's another musical genius, and and just from all accounts, you know, from what we know, a wonderful person. EGOT is Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony yeah. for those that are trying to figure out. So has won all the awards, all the all, all the, awards. the awards, and he's a, a political activist on top of it in terms of social justice and and against violence and, and brutality and so forth, particularly among African-American communities uh, that are oppressed. And he was asked about, you know, what to make of the, of the Michael Jackson thing. And, and his point was, you know, on the one hand, collectively, we're at a point where we can't pretend that this reality isn't out there. It's, it's like with the Heideggerian stuff. We, we have to acknowledge there, there is not a time that goes by where somebody's being introduced to Heidegger, where this does not come up. It is, it's incumbent on us as scholars, as educators, to acknowledge the reality of history. And so Legend made that allusion. And then he said, and then as to whether or not people should listen to Jackson's music, he said, there's nothing from that era, you know, it's, it's, what, it's sort of what you were saying, David. What's there is there. It's like if, if you discover Monet was like, you know, a, a terrible rapist or something like, I guess that's oxymoronic. Every rapist is terrible. Yeah. But, but, you know, this kind of you know, serial rapist, I guess, is the word I was looking for. You know, do you not acknowledge the work of Impressionism or something like this? You don't even have to use a hypothetical. Picasso was a horrible person. Okay. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. That's, <laughs> to my understanding, that's true. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and yet they're symbolic of a particular era in, in the creative history of art. Michael Jackson, likewise, I mean, he got the nickname the King of Pop for a reason. He His work, and, and I heard a New York Times interview with music critic who talks about all the influences today. We would not have Bruno Mars. We would not have... No, Justin and, Timberlake. And Justin Timberlake. Yeah. We would not have a lot of the kind of music that we have today that's celebrated without Michael Jackson. And so John Legend makes the good point where he's like, ultimately, it's going to have to be up to the individual and whether they can separate the work from the creator. And and I wonder, do you find that, you know, do you find that satisfying? Uh, that's exactly the question I was about to ask you. Uh, <laughs> I asked it first. So you go first. Yeah. And so I will be very honest and say on a case-by-case basis. Yeah. Okay. So my my wife's favorite film is... Manhattan, Woody Allen film. Yeah. And ironically, it's a film about underage relationship with a, a man. And so it's it's a microcosm of the very Woody Allen problem. And yeah. and yet, you know, that's that's her favorite film. I have not watched a Louis C.K. comedy special since this stuff broke, but I will still say that the usual suspects, a Kevin Spacey film, is gonna be one of my favorites, regardless of how his public profile continues to be tarnished. It's difficult because art art kind of stands on its own, and that's a difficult thing. There are times when when the art should be unconscionable, and, and I think that that's appropriate. There are other times when the art should transcend the limitations of its creator, and I think that that's also a possibility. But I don't have a, a standing principle that allows me to adjudicate that in general. I, I have to say again... I'm navigating this on a case-by-case basis. And I will say, as a Catholic, I find that very unsatisfying because I want to find a principle. I want to do everything. <laughs> I want to do everything right. You want to be part of the Boston College Theological Ethics Guild. <laughs> you want to come up with normative values. You yeah. know, what are the norms? 
No, and I, I think you're falling more on the Hauerwazian side of, of, you know, you have to kind of interpret it based on, you know, he would call this community of character reform, our Christian kind of hermeneutic based on a tradition, based on scripture. And, you know, one of the interesting things that, that came up that in this Legend interview, John Legend, was that he said, well, you know, Michael Jackson himself is not going to benefit. He's dead. He's been dead for 10 years. He personally isn't going to benefit from whether you stream his music or buy it or not. And he said, actually, the only people that are going to be harmed by that are his family. And his family, to our knowledge, had no say in any of this. They, they shouldn't be punished for his sins. I think that's right. I also, like you, don't find it entirely satisfying. I think it's complicated by, you know, the interesting thing about art is that, you know, it's that it's an, it's an extension of de gustibus non dis, disputatem that, you know, it's in, it, in the eye of the beholder, there is no dispute when it comes to taste. You can take it or leave it. And if you don't like the person and or the art itself, there's no obligation for you to embrace it, at least privately, right? You, you may not be able to control if somebody plays a Michael Jackson song in public in any event. I, I think it's a little bit more challenging from a scholarly perspective because when somebody like, you know, a Martin Heidegger creates work that is so significant and so influential that you can't excise it and, and at the same time it needs to be engaged in its own right, I don't know. I mean, I don't know that you can undo the truth value that's presented in that kind of work from the creator. I, I mean, I think, or let me put it this way. I think you can, in, in, a, in a loose analogy to the, the famous, you know, hate the sin, love the sinner. I think in this case, you can reject the sinner and be forced to grapple with the work. Yeah. And so an example of, a, of exactly what you're saying is Emmanuel Levinas, who was a translator of Heidegger and who recognized, because he was a Lithuanian Jew, the intense ethical problems of Heidegger. The first time that I read Levinas, not knowing any of the history, I was perplexed because I said, it's so strange. It's like this guy hasn't read Heidegger. It's like he went back to Descartes, and he just kind of tried to maneuver forward from Descartes. And given what I knew about 20th century philosophy at the time, that seemed very weird to me until I realized that that's exactly what he did. He was trying to find a way to move philosophy forward without having to engage with Heidegger. And he was doing it for a deeply ethical reason because he believed that engagement with Heidegger's thought tainted what followed. Well, and it's interesting. I mean, Levinas is amazing contributions, yeah. amazing contributions. But, you know, in support of his, although I don't know that I agree with his methodology, that, that you can't at least acknowledge or reckon with that contribution in the history of 20th century philosophy— Nevertheless, a lot of my work has been around Heidegger's kind of anthropocentrism mm -hmm. and this idea that only Dasein, only human beings are world-making, that other animals are essentially Cartesian machines, fleshy machines, and, and they're just kind of automatons. They don't have, quote, worlds in this you know, phenomenological sense. And that like inert creatures like stones or, or he would consider trees are without world altogether. So world poor, without world. There is, for me, actually, a direct parallel between a Nazi sort of Aryan hierarchy and what he sees played out in the human versus non-human, as he would put it, world. Yeah. And so, I mean, there actually is grounds to critique him on that. And, and to what degree his affinity for Nazism and anti-Semitism informs that is, is an ongoing question, is an open debate, as it were. But I don't I just, I don't know. I, I don't know how one 
I mean, Levinas, as you explain it, is doing a formidable task, but is, you know, there's a glaring hole in, yeah. in, in his argument. And, and in terms of a toolkit, I mean, I also, I use Heideggerian categories a lot in the work that I do. He deployed a set of u- very useful tools for thinking about the world. And if you're a theologian, it's almost impossible to avoid those tools because, as I said, Tillich and Boltmann and so many others, both in the Protestant and in the Catholic tradition, were drawing from that toolkit. And so even works that you would consider to be primary texts are speaking a Heideggerian language. And so it, it is exactly analogous to what you were saying about we wouldn't have Bruno Mars, we wouldn't have Justin Timberlake without the vocabulary that was created and deployed by someone like Michael Jackson. And so how do you... How do you not only extricate the artwork, but all the influence that the artwork has on the world? I don't know that you can. Well, and then there's another question, another way to look at this, which is when it comes to the the clergy abuse and its cover-up, I find myself struggling with too because how do we make sense of the fact that, as as Sister Helen Prejean often says, we are more than the worst thing we've done and that actually – you know, it's not like Michael Jackson is intrinsically horribly terrible and c- happened to create this this very impressive, prodigious work. It's that he also is not just the worst thing he's done, as terrible as it is. And so how to, as Christians, reconcile that is a struggle for me. It's an ongoing struggle because I know, on a personal level, I know people who have been credibly accused, you know, clergy have been credibly accused, and it's not to justify them. What they've done is horrible. What they've been alleged to do is horrible, and there's no excuse for it. But they're also somebody's brother, and they're also somebody's son, and they're also people who have oftentimes done tremendously good work for others and made positive contributions in the world. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm aware that he's, even as I say this, it's going to make some people really upset because we want to have black and white worldviews. We want to have villains and good guys, villains and good gals. And and the truth is, it doesn't work like that. And so, you know, it's too soon right now, I think, in the, in the case of Michael Jackson. Uh, maybe it's not too soon in the case of, you know, Heidegger, but this idea that people are complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not an excuse. I don't know what we make of that. Well, as a way of drawing this to a close, let me ask you one last question. So as Catholics, we are told that we need to avoid not only sin, but the near occasions of sin. So we need to we need to be discerning in the way that we engage with culture, because when sin erupts, we need to not just look at the event itself, but the structure around it that allows it. So as a, as a priest and as a theologian, how are we as Catholics to navigate this in a way that is consistent with our, with our faith? Yeah, that's a great question, and and actually, it probably merits a longer conversation. So let me just say something briefly, kind of an initial response, which is, I, I don't know that listening to the music of Michael Jackson or reading the philosophy of Martin Heidegger or looking at the artwork of Pablo Picasso or reflecting on the good charitable works of somebody like Theodore McCarrick is a near occasion of sin in terms of commission. I think the challenge is that in the Catholic tradition, we also recognize, and sometimes it's even the more ominous presence, though it's it's less acknowledged, of sins of omission. And I think that the near occasion of sin in this case is when we do not take into account or acknowledge, maybe it's a matter of a footnote, uh, maybe it's a matter of a qualifying sentence um, that gives due diligence and justice to those who've been harmed by the legacies or actions or personal lives of of these various 
figures who are themselves very complicated. And so the sin of omission or the near occasion of sin of omission is to be folks who take the easy route. I don't want to acknowledge this. I, I don't want to think about it. And, and, and somehow compartmentalize this so that we could either enjoy, you know, Michael Jackson's music uh, without having to acknowledge it or that we write it all off entirely. I think those are both instances perhaps of um, without judgment. I mean, if you need to write it all off, I think I understand that. But if it's done so to avoid dealing with the reality, with the history, with the suffering, then I think we have a problem. And so that's my take. Let's continue to wrestle. Let's continue to pray. And with that, we're going to have to draw the the program to a close. Thank you so much, Dan, for being here. And I'm looking forward to seeing you in California. See you where hopefully the weather is a little bit warmer. (laughs) Thank you all for listening. Francis Effect Podcast is produced by Sandberg Media. We recorded the show at the William Adams Studios here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we may be affiliated. We are production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they're wonderful folks, and you should look them up at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N center dot O-R-G. We also want to give a shout out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we do appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod, the letters F and X. We appreciate it very much. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook at FrancisFXPod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. And likewise, our website is FrancisFXPod.com. If you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing FrancisEffectPod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We've got an entire archive of episodes you can go back and listen to, and we appreciate you listening to this one. Thanks again. 